you have your Bibles, would you turn with me for one final time to the book of Job? We're going to be in Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. Remember, the book of Job is right before the book of Psalms, right there in the middle of your Bible. And this morning, we're going to be able to see God respond to Job. And man, we are not going to be able to do it justice. We could spend weeks right here. So we're going to stay at the 500-foot level, and we're going to see the glories of God, I think, unfold for us in a way that hopefully ministers to you if you're suffering and prepares you for when you do suffer. Job chapter 38, we're going to have a response from God. God finally speaking for the first time to Job in the book. And we'll just read the first 18 verses together. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken." Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, this morning we want to encounter you. And we believe that we can encounter you because you are not just some God. You are not a God that was uh, imagined by people. You are truly the living God here dwelling in the midst of your people, proven through the incarnation of Christ, sealed on our hearts through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we come and we open up your word given to us by your kindness that we might have an encounter with you in the way that Job encountered you, that we might hear from you and have our perspective lifted and our hearts reset and that we might come to a deeper realization of your glory, your goodness, your sovereignty, your power. This morning, raise up our view that our view of you might be higher than it is when we got here. We ask these things now in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So recently, I started a new show. All right. Now, I'm a little bit embarrassed. I don't really want to tell, tell you guys this. Um, I'm watching Virgin River, okay? I'm just going to come out and say it. Yeah, I know. I know, guys. I know. See me after the service. I'll hand in my man card. I, I get it. I really do. I would, I, I would, I would treat you the same way. It's, it's, it's totally fair. It's totally fair. But in fairness, in fairness, let me give you some context. Over the 20 years that Megan and I have been together, by her kindness, she has essentially allowed me to choose our programming on a fairly regular basis, okay? Now, that's probably because she knows she's going to sleep through all of them. 
okay? That's probably why. Um, but, but, but I, I let her choose this one. And if I'm honest, I, I've gotten a little bit into it, okay? And so, like, spoiler alert right here, okay? Like, put your fingers in your ears if you want to watch this and not be, not be alarmed. So we're watching the first season, and we come to the end of the season. It's like the 10th episode or whatever. And the, the first season ends with two of the main characters being threatened with their lives, okay? And it just cuts off right there. And you're like, what in the world, you know? And, and, and y'all, this is crazy. I could feel my heart pounding faster, okay? I could feel shortness of breath, like ER-level triage symptoms, okay? It's that suspended disbelief. I think that's what authors call it, right? And then I realized something. There's a second season. These people must not die, right? There's a second season. In other words, in the moment I was alarmed, in the moment I was fearful, in the moment I wondered if this was the end of the story just as it was getting started, but as I was able to come and think clearly and see the bigger picture, I was able to realize this wasn't the end of the story. That there was more going on here than what I was aware of. You know, I think very often, as we think through the big story, that's what I've been wanting us to, to understand. As we come to the Bible so often and we, we drill down on specific books and specific places and we think that that section is just about that section and we can even be fallen into despair. And we do the same thing in our lives, don't we? We go through a moment of hardship, a moment of suffering, a moment, moment of difficulty. And in that moment, we can't see past it. But what the big story has been aiming to show us is that God has written not just a bunch of individual stories that have been piecemealed together. Instead, indicative of his sovereign providence. He's written a grand meta-narrative in which all of the stories are connecting to a grand story. The story of how he's going to redeem his people and consummate his kingdom and bring about his glory to bear in the lives of his people upon his creation. And for us, there's hope in that. For us, there's hope in that. Because if we can understand that no one particular moment in the Bible is simply about that moment, but it's about a bigger picture that's in play, a bigger story that's being told, then we can realize the same is true about our situations, in our circumstances, in our suffering, in our depression, in our loss, in our grief, in our disappointments. That in the moment, it feels as though we've been shut down. But if we can zoom out and realize that there is a bigger picture in play, then we, we once again are able to hope. We once again are able to put our confidence in the sovereign providence of God. That it is grander. That there is a bigger picture than what we are able to see, know, or understand. And I think this is a major, a major uh, purpose for the book of Job in our lives. And I think there's no place in the book of Job that makes it so clear as here in the end of the book of Job. At the end of the book of Job, God is finally going to break through the silence that's in Job's life so that Job can understand there's been a bigger picture the whole time. That all of this has not been accidental. None of this has been incidental. But instead, by the sovereign hand of God, he's going to come in and give assurances to Job. And by giving assurances to Job, he gives assurances to us too as we suffer. He gives us assurances as we sit by our wife as she steps into eternity. He gives us assurance when our kids run away and don't seem to want to come back. 
He gives us assurance when our job is hanging in the balance and we're not sure how we're going to be able to provide for our family. The first assurance that I want you to see this morning is that the story is bigger than you see. The story is bigger than you see. We are children of the Enlightenment. I've brought that to your attention before. And being children of the Enlightenment, we believe that we are entitled to have all of the answers to life, don't we? We believe that we ought to be able, through the scientific method, come to an understanding uh, to comprehend all of the questions that we have to ask. But the problem is, is that life doesn't actually play out that way, right? That there are questions in our lives that we just can't arrive to the answer of. The scientific method is not helpful when you have one woman who is able to grow old with her family and her kids and her husband right there by by her side and her life essentially intact. And another woman who lived just as faithfully, if not more so, has experienced loss after loss after loss until ultimately she's widowed with only memories of her family to remain. The scientific method can't explain that to us. It can't help us process and make sense of it. And so I think what we see here at the end of the book of Job is how God is explaining and assuring Job that what we need is not more answers. That's what we think we need. That's what the scientific age of enlightenment has taught us. If we just have more answers, we'll have more peace. If we just have more answers to more questions, then we'll have a greater sense of purpose. If we have more answers to more questions, we won't have so much anxiety. But I think actually what God is explaining to Job is that we don't need more answers. We need new eyes. We need new eyes. We need a different perspective. We need to have our horizon lifted so that we can see reality more clearly than it actually is. That it's not going to be possible for us to have all of the answers. But, 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 in the life of a child of God, in the life of one who believes in a sovereign God, who has prayed all of these things together for his glory, that our horizon can be lifted in such a way that through new eyes, looking at the old same questions, we can come to a deeper deeper sense of assurance. And so you see this perspective shift that's taking place here in Job chapter 38. First, God looks to Job and he says, you're not alone. You're not alone. Now, I want you to think about Job. He has felt awfully alone, hasn't he? He's felt awfully alone. He's had all these questions. He's had these friends. They've come. He went through these three different cycles of dialogue and conversation. And throughout all of it, Job doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know why it's going on. He doesn't know why he's facing what he's facing. And God, God isn't saying a word. We know what's happening. The readers, the narrator knows what's happening. Job has no idea what's going on. God is strangely silent. And his silence could be mistaken as being absence. And so it's interesting the way that the writer says it there in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Out of the whirlwind. Isn't that interesting? Do you remember whirlwind back in Job chapter 1? It was through a whirlwind that a calamity came upon Job's children and caused the house to collapse upon him. It was at the hands of a whirlwind that all of this this suffering reached fever pitch as the children that he treasured and and adored and loved and offered sacrifices on their behalf are, are destroyed as the result of a whirlwind. And so here we are at Job chapter 38 and the storm is at its most intense moment. 
And all of us who live here in the state of Alabama, we know what a whirlwind means. That's not when the storm gets easier. That's when the storm gets harder. That's when its intensity grows, right? So what's the picture? Here is God speaking in the storm through the storm. You see that? Here is God speaking in the storm when the storm is at fever pitch, when the storm is, when the hail is falling and the lightning is striking and the thunder is clapping. Here is God and he is speaking in the storm through the storm. That's important for you to get. It's important for you to realize. Not only do we see here that this is God speaking in the storm through the storm, but it's interesting the name that he's called there, the Lord. If you were to go back and you were to read the three different cycles of dialogue that Job has with his friends, and then you were to read the the dialogue that he has with Elihu and the chapters after that, what you would find is that throughout there, the friends refer to God by the name of El Shaddai. El Shaddai. Now, El Shaddai references God as Almighty. There's nothing wrong with the name El Shaddai. We, We love this idea of God, that he is sovereign and mighty and strong and incomprehensible and transcendent. But because of the theological system of Job's friends, this concept of El Shaddai, God as Almighty, God as Sovereign, God as the the great judge and executor of his will, they've portrayed God as being distant. They've portrayed God as only being angry. They've portrayed God as as being cold. They've, They've portrayed God as being something that is lesser than what he actually is. So isn't it interesting That here in Job chapter 38, when God finally breaks through the silence of the moment into the intensity of the storm, that the narrator says, this isn't El Shaddai speaking. This isn't some some almighty, all-powerful, distant, angry, vengeful God. This is Yahweh. This is Yahweh. This is the covenant-keeping, love, ferociously loving, commitment-making persevering, long-suffering, steadfast, this is him. In other words, I think, I think by this portrayal of this, the shift of the name that what we're seeing here is that the intention of God in speaking to Job is to tell Job, remember the relationship. Remember my relationship with you. I, I'm not out here somewhere. I'm not cold and distant I'm not uncaring. I haven't forgotten you. Your your suffering is not lost on me. Your, your, Your difficulty is not distant from me. Here I am, Job. I am committed to you as ever. I am resolved to be close to you as ever. I am I am as committed to our relationship as I have ever been, if not more so, Job. I want you to know that here I am and I am here for you. You, you, you are not alone. That the silence of God must not be mistaken for. The absence of God. We've talked about this before, but suffering, it isolates us, doesn't it? It makes us feel lonely. It makes us feel forgotten and uncared for as though the Lord, the Lord is indifferent about the tears that we cry and the pain that we experience and the depression that we face and the loss that we know and the grief that grips us. And it feels like God isn't speaking. But here's a reminder, in the subtle shift of the name, this this God who is willing to speak in the storm and through the storm into your life, that if the crucified Savior shows us nothing else, 
He shows us that though you can be crucified, though you can be buried, though you can be in the tomb there laying dead, the story's not over yet. There's a bigger picture in play. That the story is bigger than what you can see because the presence of God is there. And so the Lord is reminding all of us in the midst of our hardship and what seems to be silence. Remember the relationship. Remember the relationship that he is more committed to you than you are to him. He's not just raising his perspective to, to remember that he's not alone. He wants him to see that, Job, you're not God. You're not God. And it's important for each of us this morning to remember that we're not God. Let me tell you how Job wants God to answer this. Job wants God to come through with a flow chart, right? You've seen these preachers before. They have charts on how all the unknown, uh, mysterious ways of God can be seen, visualized, conceptualized, and then understood, right? That's what Job's looking for. Job wants God to come in with a flow chart and say, all right, A plus B equals C. This is why you're suffering. These are the good purposes in the suffering. This is what the suffering is bringing about. You're welcome, Job. But God doesn't come with a flowchart, does he? In fact, God doesn't answer a single one of Job's questions. He doesn't answer a single one. Instead, rather than answering Job's questions, God says, I see your question. I'll raise you a bigger question. Job, if you've got questions, Job, if you've got curiosity, let, let, me, let me show you that the, que- the problem is not that you're asking questions. The problem is, is that you're not asking big enough questions. That God begins to ask Job a series of questions, and those questions are intended to raise Job's horizon so that he sees beyond the here and now, so that he sees beyond the depression that he's facing, so that he sees beyond his own sense of grief and loss, so that he sees a grander and bigger reality. He says, Job, remind me, were you there when I poured the footing for the earth? Were you there when I sunk the cornerstones on which I would place this planet? Were you there when I scooped out the oceans and placed a spring at the bottom and filled them to the brim and told the waves that they had to stop right there? Were you there, Job, when I flung the galaxies into the sky and told them this is exactly where you're supposed to be? Were you there, Job, when I placed the sun in exactly the right spot so that the earth could revolve at just the right temperature? Were you there, Job? Oh, Job, tell me if you understand. See, this comes back to a question of understanding. And this should humble each of us. Remember who Job is. Job is the greatest man in the East. The East renowned for its wise men. You'll even remember this from the story of Jesus, the wise men coming from the East, right? So here's Job. He is the wisest of all the wise men. He is the greatest of all the great men. He is the most understanding man of his age. And God says, you know what your issue is? That you understand so little. That you aren't wise enough. That is... Here is the Lord punctuating his sovereign wisdom, punctuating his sovereign goodness, punctuating the reality that that he has made all things and held all things together and sustained all things across the generations. And here's Job. And Job has the audacity to question the wisdom of God. 
No, 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 no. The problem for Job is not that he, that he has such big questions. The problem is for Job that he has such small questions that he believes, that he believes in some way that he can hold all of this together. But you know, the truth is, is that's good news for all of us. It sounds, it sounds gruff and it, it almost even sounds uncaring when we think, here's this man and he's suffering, here I am and I'm suffering, and you want to come to me and say, where were you? Where were you? Does God, does God, does God not care about the sensitivity of Job's soul? Does not, that's not the picture at all. God is setting Job free. And God is setting us free by lifting our eyes, by giving us new eyes to look on a, on a broader, higher horizon, to have a higher view of, of who he is. Because what happens is when we begin to realize that I'm not God, then that means that my well-being is not tethered to my understanding. My well-being, my ability to flourish, my ability to accomplish the purposes that I've been set on this earth to accomplish, they aren't tethered to what I understand. They aren't tethered to all of the answers that I have. They aren't tethered to my understanding of the flow chart of my life. They are tethered to one who is actually able to handle it. They are tethered to one who is actually understanding. They are tethered to one who is sovereign and wise and has organized the galaxies. And if the Lord can organize the galaxies and install the water cycle and fill the oceans and stop the waves. I bet, I bet he can manage my little old life here in Anniston, Alabama. No, we're not God. And God has his secrets and God has his mysteries because if he didn't, if you have a God whose mysteries you understand, whose ways always make sense to you, can I just tell you, you haven't actually gotten to know God yet. You haven't actually gotten to know God yet. Because any God that is small enough to fit in our minds is a God too small to save us, to create us, to purpose us, and to sustain us. So he wants Job to know that he's not God. But it's important that we see that throughout the speeches of God, it's not because God doesn't care. In fact, he wants him to see not only are you not God, but you're not insignificant. You're not insignificant. I wish we could go through all the depths of God's speech to Job, and we just can't. But there's this one section right here in the middle at the end of chapter 38, in the beginning of, verse of chapter 39, that I think is just beautiful. It's stunning. I want you to hear what he says. This is still God talking to Job. Can you hunt the prey for the lion and satisfy, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey or when its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong and they grow up in the open and they go out and they do not return to them. Do you hear what he's saying here? Who's the lion? The lion, that's the strongest, right? That's the strongest creature on earth. And here's God, and he's saying, you think the lion is insurmountable. You think the lion is invincible. Job, have you ever stopped to think, what would happen if there were no antelope for the lion to hunt? Have you ever wondered who put the antelope there? Have you ever wondered who the source of the lion's strength is? 
It's not the lion, strong as he may be. It's not the lion, as as ferocious as his roar may seem. It's not the lion, the strongest on the earth. They are sustained by me, Job. Perhaps the most interesting one is the mountain goat. Who's the mountain goat? He is not the lion, is he? The mountain goat, they live up in the, the far reaches, up on the top as highest mountain, in the, on the clefts of the rock. That is the mountain goat. They are the most forgotten, the most obscure, aren't they? They're the ones nobody thinks about. They're out of sight and out of mind. If you go on a hike through the South African bush, let me promise you, friends, you will be thinking about the lion. You will be thinking about the lion. The mountain goat, not so much. Not so much. He's not alarming, is he? Do you hear what he says, though? Do you think the mountain goats are forgotten because you don't remember them? Do you think the mountain goats are not known because you don't know them? I know how many calves they breed. I know exactly where they live. I make sure that the mountain goat lives from this generation to the next generation. In the middle of our suffering, you know what we do? We look to people who on Instagram and on Facebook, and they look like lions. They're thriving. They're doing well. And, and we look to the lions that are around us, and we feel like the mountain goats. We feel like the people that live in obscurity, that are totally forgotten and uncared for. But here's the hope. Here's the hope. Is that not one of his creatures has he forgotten? And if God has not forgotten one of his creatures, do you think he's forgotten one of his children? If God has not forgotten one of his creatures, do you think that he's forgotten one of his children? There's a lot that we can learn from the rose-veiled fairy wrasse. I bet you didn't expect to come to church this morning and learn about the rose-veiled fairy wrasse, did you? It's a beautiful fish, isn't it? You can just see the, the creative brilliance of our Lord in all of the colors and the vibrancy and the high-definition uh, uh, artistry that goes into the, uh, to the rose-veiled fairy wrasse. I want to get it just right. Do you know what is remarkable about this fish? It was discovered for the first time in March of 2022. I want you to think about that. This, in all of its glory, in all of its glory, as brilliant and as beautiful as it is, Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of generations have come and gone, and not a single one of them even knew what it was. Not only that, beyond the Roosevelt fairy wrasse, the the Smithsonian says there are about 18,000 new species that are discovered by scientists every year. I want you to think about what that shows. First of all, it shows, again, The insurmountable sovereign wisdom of our God, doesn't it? The creative prowess that God is so creative that he is making things in ways, in places that we haven't even found yet. Just because he can. Just because he can. The galaxies are millions and millions of light years away from us. And God made it not because we'll ever get there. Not because we'll see the the flowers that might be there. Not because we'll see the parks that might be there. He made them because he can. Because he is mighty and brilliant. But even more, more pertinent to my suffering and to yours, even more pertinent to Job's suffering and to yours, is this forgotten fish that you didn't know about has made it, 
has made it one generation after the next generation without a single help from a single man. Because God has provided for it. And God has, has known about it. And God has sustained it from one generation to the next. And if you think that God will sustain the rose-veiled fairy wrath so that we can just now see it in all of its brilliance, well, do you think the Lord needs your help to sustain your life too? Oh, you're not insignificant. If God hasn't forgotten the fairy wrath, my goodness, he hasn't forgotten his image bearers. He hasn't forgotten the very ones that are uniquely equipped to make his glory manifest in this planet through which we can reign with dominion and tell the world that our God is greater than all of the gods and our Lord is greater than all of the Lord's. Yeah, you're not God, but you're not insignificant either. The next assurance that he gives us is that the plan is better than you realize. The plan is better than you realize. It's, it's interesting, you'll remember back, and this is certainly in Job's mind here, uh, in, when he begins to speak there in Job 42, he's responding to God after God has given this long speech. And, and you, can, you can see the wheels turning in Job's mind because Job goes back, and you remember what he said, don't you? Job was puffed out his chest before his friends, and he said, I'm going to question God to his face, and God will answer me. I bet you've said the same thing, haven't you? I can't even count the number of people I've stood at funerals of tragedies who said, I've got a question or two for the Lord when I get there. That's where Job was. But listen to what Job says when the moment actually occurs. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is, it that, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That all of a sudden... The pride is let out of Job's ego so that he can actually come to the realization of reality. That the new eyes that God has given us, the fresh perspective that he has given us is for the purpose of forming in us a transformed heart. A new heart that will enable us to understand, appreciate, love, and be astonished and amazed by the glories of who God really is. In fact, in Job's response, you see these three realizations that he has about the kindness of God, about the greatness of God, about the, the sovereignty of God. That is, that Job realizes that God's purposes are unstoppable. He says it there in verse 2. I know that you can do all things. There's nothing that God can't do and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted or stopped. That, that, that God, what I know, what I have learned through my suffering, what I have learned through my tears, what I have learned through my depression, what I have learned by this conversation with you is that your purposes are unstoppable. And any attempt that I have to seize the controls of my life and micromanage my life away from suffering and try to oversteer my, my life so that I can avoid the hard realities of providence only do violence to my soul. I wonder if your life right now I wonder if you're seeking to oversteer your life away from all the suffering and oversteer your children away from all the hardship so that you can make sure that you live in a comfortable world. Can I tell you 
that what Job is here to teach us is that that will only do violence to your soul. That God has purposes for our life and God has a providential plan for our lives. And those plans are unstoppable. They will not be thwarted regardless of how we seek to seize control and micromanage our lives. And that may not seem like much comfort to you, but there is a progression in the realization of Job, a progression in the thought pattern of Job, that God's purposes are unstoppable, but God's purposes are wonderful. God's purposes are wonderful. Verse, verse uh, 3, who is this? He's, he's quoting back uh, the Lord, and then he's, he's uh, giving a realization based on that reflection. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things to wonderful for me to see, which I did not know. Do you hear what he's saying there? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, if I was writing my story, I wouldn't have written it like this. How many of you would say that to the Lord? If I was writing this story, if I was writing what my family was going to look like, I wouldn't write it like this. If I was going to write what my marriage would look like, I wouldn't write it like this. If I was going to write what my career looked like, if I was going to write what my health looked like, if I was going to write what my family life looked like, what my upbringing looked like, if I was going to write the story, Lord, it wouldn't look anything like this. But Job says, even though I wouldn't have written it this way, it's wonderful that you have. Now what's stark is what has changed about Job's circumstances For him to say that. Nothing. Nothing. Job still doesn't have his children. Job still doesn't have his his wealth. Job still doesn't have his health. Job's reputation still has not been destroyed. None of that has happened yet. And yet, here is Job looking on on a higher horizon with a bigger view of God. And he's saying, no, my circumstances have not changed. But my view of who God is has been transformed. My understanding in an encounter with the living God here who cares for me and wants me, despite the hardship of my life, now I am able to see that it's wonderful. That is, the suffering, that's not wonderful. You don't have any responsibility to say that it is. It's not wonderful if your husband leaves you. It's not wonderful if your wife has an affair. It's not wonderful if you were abused as a child. None of those things are wonderful. And you have no responsibility to say that the suffering is wonderful. But here's what's wonderful. Though the suffering is not wonderful, the purposes are wonderful. The purposes are wonderful. What would be more despairing than knowing that you have went through all that you've went through and you're facing all that you're facing and you're going to encounter all that you're still yet to encounter and to not believe that it was for a purpose that there was not a bigger picture in play, that there was not a bigger story, a more beautiful story being written. That's the purposes for the people of God. That's the, the comfort of the providence of God that steps into the midst of our pain. In fact, this word wonderful is a word of worship. It's a word of amazement. It's a word of astonishment. In uh, Psalm 26, David uses this word in Talking about words, he says, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. It's the same word. Joshua, he's right there, and he's on the edge of the Jordan River, and they're about to cross over the edge of the Jordan River, and they're going to take the promised land for the first time, and they're going to walk around the walls of Jericho, and they're going to watch those walls come crumbling down, and they're going to see the sun stand still as the Lord goes before them and slays their enemy and delivers on his promise. But by faith, 
by faith. Joshua looks forward to the hardship that is to be encountered. Joshua looks forward to the mission that is there. And he says, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders, same word, among you. That is the realization that Job comes to. The realization that David had. The realization that Joshua had is that our deepest worship comes in our lowest valleys. Our deepest worship comes in our lowest valleys. The moment in which we can exert and apply faith and walk by faith and press on by faith are those moments in which it seems as though life can't get any harder or more difficult and you would write it any way other than what it is not what, the way it's written. But it's in those moments as you walk around the walls of Jericho that you have the greatest opportunity to be amazed by the glory of God, by the goodness of God, by the nearness of God. Thoughts continuing to progress. God's purposes are unstoppable. God's purposes are wonderful. And God's purposes are eye-opening. Eye-opening. Can I just tell you something? That God is committed to being known by his people. Being known by his people. Do you know what I mean by that? I think when we hear this idea of being known, we think of knowing God the way that we know George Washington, right? Like, we know lots of facts about George Washington. We know he was the first president, and we know that he led the Continental Army, and we know that he didn't want to be the We know all the stuff, right? But we didn't really know George Washington. We didn't know what kind of man he was, or what kind of husband he was, or what kind of daddy he was. God doesn't want us to know him the way that we know George Washington. To be known in the scriptures means something far more intimate and deep than it does in our culture. To be known in the scriptures is the way that Adam was to know his wife without shame, without inhibition, without, without any kind of club, but fully exposed. Here I am, O oh Lord. I know you fully and you know me fully. It's the kind of knowledge that, that is a, 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 a little boy or a little girl is able to hear the voice of their father in the midst of a crowded room and know that's my dad. That's my dad. That God endeavors to be known by his people, and God is known most clearly when his people need him most. And so hear the testimony of Job. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I knew of you like I knew of George Washington. I knew of you like I knew of my favorite athlete or my favorite celebrity. I had heard of you by the hearing of your ear. But now, my eyes, they see you. Can I ask you a question? Do you really want to know God? Do you really want to know him? Not about him, know him. Know that he will come through for you. Know that he will deliver for you. Know that he will stand there for you. Know that his promises will come true. Know that he will secure the future. Know that his providence is ultimately for your good and for his good. Do you want to know him? Because see, Job comes to the realization that all of us must come to. That the knowledge of God is more valuable than a comfortable life. And that kind of realization, that kind of thought is the kind of thought that will sustain you to the mission field when you have no idea how that's going to work out. 
That kind of realization is the kind of realization that will sustain you through the hardest marriage and sustain you through the most difficult moments of your life. That kind of realization, the desire to know God more than I desire a comfortable life will enable you to have sacrificial generosity in your life and self-sacrificing service in your life. That realization that what I want is not a more comfortable life, what I want is not a nicer car, what I want is not an easier time, what I want. What I desperate for is I am desperate for my eyes to behold the glory of God, for my eyes to see the goodness of God, for my eyes to see the supply of God. Is that what you want? Because strikingly, Job sees it and he repents. Throughout the book of Job, what's being called for by his friends, that Job would repent And time and again, Job says, I haven't sinned. I haven't sinned. There is nothing for which I should repent. And the Bible, the narrator, upholds the integrity of Job and says, Job, there is nothing that he he has done. There is no sin that has come out of his life. All of it has been right. So what is it that he repents of here at at, at the end? Commentators speculate. Let me tell you what I think it is. That he doesn't repent so much for specific sin in his life as he repents for having too small of a view of God. That is, if you're laying in a hospital bed and you're unable to care for yourself and there's your young bride standing there right beside you and this isn't what she wrote for her story either and yet she's giving you a drink of water when you need a drink of water and she's helping you into the shower when you need to be helped into the shower and She's encouraging you when you get down and she's wiping the tears from your face as they go down and, and she's, she's talking you through your most depressive moments and you sit there in that hospital bed and you have a deeper realization of how much she loves you and how committed to you she really is. And in that moment, the only thought is a sense of, of I have taken her for granted. I have not loved her the way that she deserves to be loved. I have not treated her the way that she deserves to be treated. I love her so much more than what I realized and I repent of how I used to love her that I might let her know that she is treasured for who she really is. That's what Job has happening here. See, the irony of suffering is that sufferers need a higher view of God in order to be sustained. Yet, yet, it's very often through suffering that God gives us a higher view of himself that we might be sustained. I bet many of you have been Christians for a long time. If I were to talk about the greatest movements and works of God in your life, you would immediately take me to the moment of your greatest suffering. And you would tell me that that's the moment. That's the moment before your ears had heard. But now your eyes, they see. See the future? The future is brighter than your past. That's the landing point for Job. It says that Job, God, the Lord, restored the fortunes of Job. And he went, and his friends come, and they begin to pay alms to him, and they begin to show sympathy for him and to show him that they had not understood. In fact, it goes on to say that that all that Job had once had was now doubled. His family was restored. He had seven sons and three daughters, just the same. The number of livestock that he had once had was all twice as much as what he had had 
once before. And it says that after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations, and Job died an old man full of days. That is, Job died as a blessed man. And the purpose of that is not to say that if you lose something today, five years from now, everything's going to be doubled in this life. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to show that Job's hope was not false. That you'll remember that what Job had said back in uh, Job chapter 19 is, this is what I know. I, in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my grief, in the midst of my loss, what I know is that my Redeemer lives. And my Redeemer, through his life, is going to make sure that all of this is vindicated. That my reputation is vindicated. That my, that my honor is vindicated. That my righteousness is known. So what we see at the end is that God will not make those who hope in him a fool. God will prove that those who place their confidence, their trust, and their hope in him will be seen as people who really did understand, even though they didn't understand everything they wanted to know. See, in the big story, constantly we're zooming out so that we can be reminded that there, are, there is a new heaven and there is a new earth that's going to be established here one day. And the hope of Job is to remind us that one day, in that day, regardless of what you face here, regardless of the pain that you know now, regardless if you live destitute the rest of your days on the earth, regardless if your reputation is never restored, one day the righteous in the kingdom of God, they will be vindicated. The righteous in the kingdom of God, they will be rewarded one day. They will be rewarded not according to their righteousness. They will be rewarded according to the righteousness of Christ himself that this is not all there is the story it's bigger than this the picture it's bigger than this that the future the future is brighter than it is right now let's pray to the Lord together thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons we would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one we are not a perfect church but we are a joyful church and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.